Hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And the summer of ESSA continues. We're on kind of sort of draft six and a half. There have been <laughs> changes made to draft six. You were there Monday when some of the changes were discussed. Uh, get us caught up on that, and, uh, and and we'll talk a little bit more about what's uh, what's still in what's still in dispute, what's still a point of contention in this thing. Sure, I kicked off my week on Monday morning, getting together with a group of state policymakers from the State Department of Education and the State Board of Education, uh, who met with some education groups. There are about twenty people uh, who gathered in Boise. Uh, it's essentially the third major meeting this summer where groups got together and talked about Idaho's uh, plan to comply with the federal Every Student Succeeds Act. As you know, we're getting much, much closer to the September 18th deadline when this plan has to go off uh, to the federal government. And this, Kevin, as you know, as many of our listeners know by now, this is essentially the plan is Idaho's application to receive about $83 million dollars uh, in federal funding mm-hmm. each year. That's a much smaller chunk uh, than state funding, but it's still important. And that goes to a lot of federal programs, particularly uh, programs that benefit students with disabilities, students who are learning English, and also some areas of teacher improvement and professional development. So that's what the plan is. And it's a, a, a long-range, wide-ranging plan. It has an accountability program in there, as we've talked about, but it also directs something like eight or nine different federal programs. So there's a lot of topics covered in the plan. It's about 75 pages right now. And that's really what the summer has been about. Uh, There have been lawmakers. There have been leaders of key education groups who've said they've been kind of kept in the dark, don't know what's going on with the plan. And so uh, they had their second or really third chance to go through it. On Monday, uh, they got all the way through the plan. A couple of things that I noticed, some of the policymakers are are starting to, uh, I think acceptance is Mm -hmm. is the right word, as we get closer to the deadline, as they go through it with a fine-tooth comb and find out more about what's in it. Uh, There's still some concerns, there's still some disagreements, not everyone's on the same page. So not really enthusiastic, but... Uh, but acceptance. Acceptance, f- for sure. And we're getting closer to the deadline. Uh, I think they are uh, taking into account feedback and they are making changes. One of the changes that I want to talk about has to do with the reporting size, the minimum number of mm-hmm. students that have to be in a group. We talked last week about how draft six of the plan set that bar. Uh, the, the, the group of students was so large, it had to be 25 groups Uh, 25 students or more, Mm -hmm. for a school to basically be subject to the accountability provisions. And that would have cut out about 16% of the smallest rural schools in the state. That really excludes a lot of smaller high schools. Yeah. Uh, So one of the proposals Monday, as a result of public feedback, was they're lowering that threshold. They're going to lower it down to 20 for all students and then to 10 uh, for students with disabilities and and students in different subgroups. And so what that does is that allows more small schools, especially at the subgroup level, to be tracked for accountability purposes. And so what does that mean at the end of the day? The way state officials described it, 
is that hopefully by lowering that threshold, you have fewer students that fall through the cracks. So、mm-hmm. if there was a problem with a subgroup of students, it would maybe be less likely to go unnoticed by narrowing the reporting size、uh, so that those small schools are included. That was one of the big changes that we made this week, and that was an area、uh, that educators and that policymakers. Uh, had had concerns about over the last two weeks, and, and as nerdy as it sounds, I mean these these n sizes, as they're called in, in statistical jargon. I mean it really is going to determine who it's going to determine the accountability function for smaller schools and potentially、uh, where money winds up going. We're talking about a share of two million dollars in federal funding that's designed to help the lowest performing schools improve, and so this makes it so that there are more small schools that could be included. If they fall in that lowest performing bracket, that would be eligible for the funding.、Uh, if the reporting size, the end size, was larger,、uh, those schools would have missed out.、Uh, and that's not to say all small schools are going to be among the lowest performing schools.、Uh, but if there are, that means that they will be eligible to receive that boost in federal funding. So it really, we have to talk about statistics for a minute. And I know that that's. Your eyes glaze over, and nobody wants. It's to, not quality podcasting, but it's important. Nobody、stuff. wants a math homework assignment, but it really affects what schools, what students are going to be subject to this accountability, where money can flow, and, and what's going to happen. So it really determines what families, what schools are affected,、uh, and so that was one important thing that came out of the meeting.、Um, but I want to talk about one more debate that we're having、and、in these another, final and weeks. And it's another numbers game that's also really important. For sure, and this has to do with the long-range goals that are called out in the ESA plan over the last two, three weeks.、Uh, several state policymakers, in particular Representative Ryan Kirby, who is a retired school superintendent, said that these long-term goals. Were unrealistic. They were too high. They were too ambitious, especially when you look at students with disabilities and students who are learning English. And、uh, so these goals have to do with student performance on your standardized test. That's your SBAC test,、uh, the Smarter Balance test that people have been talking about for several years. Now, in the most recent draft, draft six, the most recent public draft of the ESA plan, just one goal, real quick, and then we'll move on. The 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 students with disabilities, they had 15% of them scored at proficient in the year 2016, and that's kind of the baseline. So 15% of students with disabilities scored at proficient in 2016. The state's ESA plan called for dramatically increasing that to 57% uh, of, of students with disabilities over just a six-year time period. Well, why does that matter? A little context, Kevin, as you know. State scores have basically been flat、right. in each of、mm-hmm. the first three years under the new SBAC test, and so、uh, in some categories it decreases a little bit, in some categories it may go up, but it's basically flat over the last three years. And we're talking about just this dramatic increase、uh, for students with disabilities, and it doesn't seem to make sense. And Representative Kirby said, if these goals are so unrealistic, you run the risk of educators just. Ignoring them, and so Representative Kirby came back with a counterproposal that the state said was too modest, that did not do enough to shrink achievement gaps, and then the state developed kind of a third counterproposal, kind of a middle of the road plan,、uh, and that's the latest plan right now. Rather than bring it up from 15% to 57%,、uh, this newest plan talks about bringing it up from 15%. To forty-three percent. Okay. So it's a bit of a compromise. But stay tuned.、Uh, 
the state does want to hear from you. Idahoans have until July 31st uh, to share feedback about the plan. And I can tell you, as someone who's watched this very closely, state officials are listening to that feedback, and there is a chance uh, to make a difference. And so we have links on our most recent ESA stories. Also at the State Department of Education website, there are links to review the plan, the whole plan, if you want to take a look at it, Draft 6. There's also a link to provide feedback online. So check that out. We will continue to follow ESA as we get closer to these big deadlines in August and September. So thank oh. you for sticking with me. You can head over to IdahoEdNews.org, uh, read through the report yourself, and, uh, and check that out. But let's, you too can be part of the summer of ESA. <laughs> right, you too can be part of the summer of ESA. Let's, let's shift back to um, state matters a little mm-hmm. bit, yeah. Kevin. You had a chance to track some budget numbers. July 1st is an important date every year in the state of Idaho because that's when our budget year, our fiscal year, turns over. Uh, you were tracking the money. How are we looking uh, in terms of state finances at this point as we begin the new budget year? Well, yeah, let's, let's first talk about the year-end budget numbers, sure. and, and then we can catch up on some, some other tax policy that, that came down from the Supreme Court this week. First, the numbers. And July 1st is an important date on the, the state's calendar because it marks the beginning of a new budget year and, and obviously then the end of the previous budget year. Yep. So the books are closed on 2016-17, and the numbers are pretty good. Uh, Basically, uh, tax collections came in $94 million ahead of projections. Uh, July alone was $29 million in projections. So if you you bought a a big screen TV or if you you went on a vacation and you paid a bunch of sales tax, you contributed to that $29 million ahead of uh, projections just for the month. Now, what does all of that mean? Well, the money's not going to get spent all at once. There are a lot of uh, uh, triggers within state law. Uh, when revenues exceed projections, that money is transferred automatically into a- any number of budget reserves. There are a couple of different transfers that, that, that occur just because of the revenues from June. And the state has three rainy day funds, for lack of a better word. Right. The, the one biggest one is the is really the rainy day fund, and this is the one that the state can use for basically any kind of financial crunch that comes along. And, and, that, uh, and that comes in now at uh, the robust sum of $318.7 million in, in the bank. And that is only one of the reserves. There's another one set aside... Uh, just for K-12, and that wasn't affected by what happened uh, in June. That sits at $85 million. And there's another $9 million that's parked into a, a rainy day fund for higher education. Long story short, state's got quite a bit of money in savings, heads into the new budget year, and, you know, six months away, uh, a new legislative session with uh, cash in hand and, and cash in reserve which I think uh, could definitely influence some of the debate that we're going to hear at the legislature with regard to education funding or tax cuts. Uh, I I think it sets the stage for some very interesting, robust debate about what do you do with all this money and when when are the reserves adequate uh, for budgeting purposes and when do they seem adequate for political purposes when folks in an election year are going to try to make some points on either uh, boosting education funding, boosting teacher pay, 
or trying to cut taxes. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really why these numbers are important. That's why we obsess over the state budget and why we cover uh, the budget committees during the legislative session. Just as a little bit of a reminder, most people know this, but uh, when we talk about the state budget, about 48% of that state budget uh, goes directly to K-12 public education. When you factor in higher ed, that's about 60% of the state budget, as you know, Kevin. Uh, there's a lot of different opportunities uh, to spend that money. A lot of it is triggered into reserves, as you mentioned, and I predict a big, hearty uh, debate about potential tax cuts during the 2018 session. And so there will be a lot of people that have their eye, uh, their eyes on that money, right? Right, and especially after what happened Tuesday with the Supreme Court. Uh, let's, the, the, let's talk about that. Um, it all had to do with timeliness and vetoes and sales tax and budgets, but uh, you, you've read the decision. Uh, what, are we, what are we talking about and what did the Supreme Court say? Well, I'm going to spare listeners, I'm going to spare myself uh, talking about much of the the legal nuance of this decision. And it is a complicated, nuanced, split decision from the Supreme Court. Bottom line, what matters maybe most to taxpayers and policymakers right now, the Supreme Court decision keeps the sales tax intact on groceries. The bid by the 30 legislators to basically go to court and override the governor's veto of the the grocery tax repeal. That didn't work. The Supreme Court, four to one decision, kept the the veto intact, which keeps the 6% sales tax on groceries intact. Why does that matter for, for budgeting and for education? Well, if you do the math and you you did the grocery tax repeal that that passed the legislature. You're talking about an eighty million dollar impact on the general fund. Yeah, and you know, with with if there's no immediate replacement for that eighty million dollars, that's eighty million dollars that could go to public schools or go to higher education. And if you extrapolate the math, you know, when we spend sixty percent of the general fund on education issues, you know, you can. You can easily, Everybody see, else is fighting you over can the easily see that that's a pretty good chunk of money, you know, you know, 40, 50 million dollars, 50 million when you think about higher ed as well as, uh, as K-12. So grocery tax remains intact going into this 2018 legislative session. But bear in mind, you've had 30 legislators, all Republicans, but 30 legislators signed on to this, uh, to this appeal to the Supreme Court to try to overturn the governor's veto. I can't imagine those 30 legislators are going to go going to back away from this <laughs> issue. This right. has become a politically charged issue for legislators, especially legislators who are running for re-election in 2018. I think you're going to see uh, a lot of debate about tax policy, a lot of debate about budget policy. Uh, a lot of uh, I'm sure there are legislators who are, are still wanting to see some form of tax relief coming out of the legislature in 2018 because really nothing happened in terms of tax relief in the 2017 session. So I don't know. You, you look at the what happened at the Supreme Court and you look at what uh, what the year-end budget numbers look like, the year-end revenue numbers look like, I, I think we're poised for uh, a lot of debate and potentially a lot of disagreement about tax policy and spending policy. Oh, I I agree with you completely. I don't think this does anything to ease any of the tension uh, between the governor and the Republican uh, 
legislators from his same party. I don't think, no matter what the court ruled, I don't think that would have eased that tension. But I, I think this kind of a ruling does not ease, ease that tension right, at all. Right, right. It definitely does not. That tension still exists. Uh, a wonky little sidebar to all of this uh, from the Supreme Court. Upshot of this is the Supreme Court said that the legislature cannot leave town mm-hmm. unless and until all legislation is transmitted to the governor's desk. That could potentially make the legislative session a little bit longer. Uh, for, for you younger legislative reporters who want to get to tree fort, it may complicate your lives a little bit for us aging non-tree fort folks. You know, not as big a deal, but it, it could make for a longer legislative session, but it's it's going to be a long and potentially very contentious legislative session on a lot of fronts. They just may just have to be in town a couple of days longer. Well, it'll be fun, and it's only five and a half months away. Sure. And uh, i got to tell you, though, I'm counting on it being a short and sweet legislative session because it's an election year, and a lot of legislators are going to want to run home to defend their seats in contested primaries. It is Unless f- you get to tree for it. Good right. luck, with, and let me good get, luck me, with that. Let me get to tree for it. Sure, it is a fun ruling uh, if you're into politics. Uh, if you look at the headline uh, from back on the 18th, Supreme Court keeps grocery tax on the books. You can dive into the ruling. It's kind of fun because the justices sort of lectured both sides, saying that they are misinterpreting the state constitution. That's always kind of fun. And uh, if you want to find out a little bit more yeah, uh, about the ruling, uh, check that story it's out. It's definitely the court being contrarian and kind of smacking all parties uh, for not understanding the, the process and the procedure. So you can read the uh, ruling for yourself, all 21 pages of it. Which is interesting because uh, there are probably 105 self-professed constitutional scholars in the Idaho legislature. So yeah. it would be uh, an interesting point. Let's just run through uh, some of the several other pieces of news this week. Uh, let's run through uh, some of the highlights and let people know uh, what we've been working on that they could check out mm-hmm. if um, if they missed it. I want to go back to Eastern Idaho and the uh, the new community college there, the College of Eastern Idaho. Little bit of uh, brouhaha, especially on social media, with the proposed new logo for the College of Eastern Idaho. And uh, it almost looks like a sports clothing uh, company's logo, Yeah, right? Devin Bodkin has a little story on, on our site, and you can also see it on the Facebook page. The new Eastern Idaho, uh, the new College of Eastern Idaho logo, and its uh, similarity, uh, some might say, to the logo for Adidas. Uh, you can look at the logo side by side, and you can join the conversation at our Facebook page. Uh, it, it's... Uh, it's interesting, let's just say. And, and it was kind of the first thing that jumped out at me when I looked at the logo when they unveiled it. But yeah, no, it feels like deja vu. Anyway, check it out for yourself. Uh, we are also, uh, you and I, uh, trying to spend some time this summer catching up with some of the new superintendents that are, uh, that are taking the helm around the state. I uh, did a profile on Paula Keller. She is the new superintendent in the Nampa School District. Not new to Nampa or the school district. She was a deputy superintendent there and worked for several years at Northwest Nazarene University. I had a chance to sit down and talk to her about what she's hoping to do in that district, uh, a district that's had a lot of turmoil and yeah. a lot of turnover in the past. Uh, what is she hoping to focus on? We, we, we talked to her about that. 
You spent some time talking to a new superintendent in Payette. Yeah, went out to uh, Payette, met with Robin Gilbert. Uh, she left the Middleton School District where she was a director of instruction and student achievement. Uh, brand new superintendent at the Payette School District. So we're talking to her a little bit about that transition. That story has not published yet, uh, but we're going to have a short video component to go with it. And we expect to unveil that story in the next week or so. Kind of a fun time um, for a lot of school districts, uh, July 1, with it being the start of the budget year, is when a lot of new administrators and superintendents uh, come on. And so a lot of districts I know uh, are excited about the new leadership they have and wanting to, and curious about the new leadership they have, wanting to find out uh, who their superintendent is and what their goals are and, and their leadership style. And it's a chance for us as reporters, we get a, a, an opportunity to kind of get to know these uh, new superintendents a little bit, get a sense of what they're hoping to uh, accomplish and achieve. So uh, we'll be rolling stories like that out here in the next uh, next few weeks. Yeah, it's going to be a busy summer. Uh, we're going to continue to cover ESA. We're going to continue uh, to follow uh, news of the day, introduce you to some new superintendents. There is a big State Board of Education meeting the second week of August. And so even though school is out, uh, we are staying busy and a lot of uh, education policy is being set uh, at this time, whether it's at the local district level or the stage is being set uh, for the 2018 legislative session and 2018 elections. So we're staying busy, uh, but we always appreciate uh, you guys reading our stories and listening to the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a lot of fun. Uh, if you don't know by now, you can give us a follow on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. Uh, that's where we publish all of our uh, breaking news each day. We also live tweet some meetings and some news uh, when that's appropriate. So if you're not familiar uh, with our Twitter site, head over to Idaho Ed, or head over to at Idaho Ed News and give us a follow on Twitter. But I think that gets us caught up with all the big news uh, this week. And uh, thank you so much for listening. We always appreciate it. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.